Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. In January of this year, which is 2020, if you're listening to old back episodes at some point in the future, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, and that's the number of states that are needed to add that amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So as of when we're recording this, that's really recent news. But the effort to add this amendment or one like it to the Constitution has been going on for a really long time. A different version of it was first proposed almost 100 years ago, and it was reintroduced in every congressional session between 1923 and 1972. (laughs) I found this amazing statistic that about 10% of the constitutional amendments that have been proposed in Congress have been the Equal Rights Amendment or something related. And the effort to get it ratified has gone on for almost 50 years Uh, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify it just a few weeks ago, but the deadline to do that passed decades ago. This has just been lingering for so long. This amendment has been through cycles of support and opposition, but one thing that has held true is that the loudest voices on both sides have been women. So that's the story we're going to tell today. The U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the United States. It sets up the framework for the nation's government, and it also establishes a set of fundamental rights. The Constitution also includes a process for how to make changes to it, which is in Article 5. Unless two-thirds of the states call for a constitutional convention, this starts in Congress, with proposed amendments requiring two-thirds of both the Senate and the House of Representatives to vote in favor. After getting that approval, amendments have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. Most of the time, this also happens through voting in the state legislatures. It's only been not through voting one time, and that's when prohibition was repealed. So getting two-thirds of Congress and then the legislatures of three-quarters of the states to all agree on something is pretty challenging, and that is on purpose. The framers of the Constitution recognized that it was a work in progress and that the world changes, so there needed to be a way to change the Constitution. But it had also taken a lot of work to get the Constitution written and ratified in the first place, and a lot of that negotiation was really built on the idea that the next wave of legislators wouldn't be able to just come in and rewrite the whole thing on a whim. The framers also thought that if changes to the Constitution were too frequent or too massive, it would lead to all kinds of social and economic and political instability and possibly just threaten the entire thing. As of when we are recording this, the Constitution has 27 amendments, and neither the main body of the Constitution nor any of the amendments specify that U.S. citizens have equal rights regardless of their sex. The 14th Amendment, which was added after the Civil War, does include an equal protection clause, which says that no state can, quote, deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. But when the 14th Amendment was drafted, it rested on the assumption that there were two classes, black and white, who should have equal protection under the laws. It has only been in relatively recent years that the Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment as applying to other races or ethnicities or to sex or gender. The effort to add an Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution started just after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. 
That amendment reads, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The National Women's Party had been established in the 19-teens to fight for women's suffrage, including fighting for this amendment. And then after the 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18th of 1920, the NWP turned its attention toward a new amendment, and that was one that would guarantee equal rights between the sexes in general, not just for voting. Members of the NWP proposed various wording, and the version that was presented to Congress in 1923 was written primarily by Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman. They called it the Mott Amendment in honor of Lucretia Mott. It was introduced by Senator Charles Curtis and Representative Daniel Anthony Jr., who was Susan B. Anthony's nephew. A joint resolution on this was introduced on December 23, 1923, and it read, quote, Resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, two-thirds of each House concurring therein, that the following article is proposed as an amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states. Men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Introducing a joint resolution is just the first step in the process of amending the Constitution. A joint resolution is a bill, and before a bill gets voted on, it goes to a committee, which can research the matter, discuss, and make changes. The committee can then send the revised bill to the House or the Senate for further debate and discussion, or they can send it to a subcommittee for yet more research. It's only after both the House and the Senate that have actually debated and voted on the joint resolution and passed it by a two-thirds majority that it goes to the states for ratification. So when Senator Curtis and Representative Anthony introduced the joint resolution on the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923, It was not voted on or sent to the states for ratification at that time. It went to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, and it stayed there. It's easy to imagine that what happened next was almost 50 years of bogged-down bureaucracy or legislative foot-dragging over what seems like a pretty basic question of whether citizens of the United States have equal rights regardless of their sex. But really, the women's movement was divided over this amendment. Legislators were hearing from constituents who opposed this amendment before it was even introduced, and a lot of that opposition came from women. We're going to talk about this more after we pause for a sponsor break. Yeah, it's a little early in the show for a break, we know. We want to keep all this part together. history of the Equal Rights Amendment, some of its support and opposition has been connected to the idea of what a woman is supposed to be. In really broad strokes, people who have believed that a woman's place is in the home, being a wife and a mother, they've been more likely to oppose the amendment, while people who believe that a woman should be able to pursue any vocation that she chooses they've been more likely to support the amendment. But regardless of whether those opinions have been rooted in religion or biology or in some other factor, it has never been only about this kind of ideology. In the beginning, a lot of women's opposition to the amendment was because of labor rights and specific rights that women were afraid they were going to lose if the amendment passed. 
Between about 1890 and 1920, working women had lobbied for and won a number of workplace protections in many states. This included minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, and laws prohibiting women from being assigned to overnight shifts or dangerous work. These laws applied to women only. Men were not perceived as needing this kind of protection. And the U.S. Supreme Court had issued decisions supporting the idea that these kind of laws were constitutional. For example, there was its 1908 ruling in Mueller v. Oregon. In Oregon at the time, it was illegal for women working in factories to have a workday that was longer than 10 hours. Kurt Muller, who owned a laundry business, was fined when he violated that law and he took the matter to court. The question before the Supreme Court was whether Oregon's law violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, and the court's opinion was that no, it did not, because women could bear children and were socially expected to raise and care for those children. It was within the state's interest to limit their hours at work. I do want to point out that not every woman can or does want to bear children and raise them, but, like, that was the court's argument. Labor reformers thought, correctly, that if the Mott Amendment were added to the Constitution, these types of laws would be abolished, stripping women of protections that they had worked to secure. And the women most likely to be affected didn't feel like the National Women's Party was listening to or understanding their concerns about that. In the words of Melinda Scott of United Textile Workers, the NWP, quote, does not know what it is to work 10 or 12 hours a day in a factory. So they do not know what it means to lose an eight-hour day or a nine-hour day law. The working women do know. Conversely, a lot of members of the NWP were pretty affluent, highly educated women. Most of them were white. Many either worked in more prestigious fields or didn't need to work at all. Alice Paul was the daughter of a wealthy businessman who had a bachelor's degree from Swarthmore College. She had a master's degree from what's now Columbia University and a Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania. Crystal Eastman was the daughter of two ministers, and she'd gotten degrees from Vassar and Columbia before getting a law degree from the New York University Law School. In the view of the NWP and other supporters of the Mott Amendment, these protectionary laws were not really protecting women. They were forcing women to stay in roles where they had to have a man's support to survive. Women were kept out of more lucrative work if it was perceived as dangerous. They couldn't advance in the workplace because of the restrictions on their shifts and hours. And the very idea that women needed protection through these kinds of laws reinforced the idea that women were not as capable as men. Although labor organizations were a big part of the opposition to the Mott Amendment, women's legal protections also went beyond the workplace. Most states had laws on the books that required a husband and father specifically to provide for his wife and children. Women, but not men, were entitled to alimony after a divorce. And there were also concerns about what this amendment could mean for men, that if employers couldn't pay women less, they would have to pay men less in order to make things equal. Here's how a 1924 pamphlet outlining arguments for and against the amendment summed all of this up. Arguments for the amendment were written by Alice Paul, who wrote that the amendment would be more inclusive, more permanent, and more dignified than individual state legislation on the subject. She wrote, quote, The amendment will win for all women. Equal control of their children, equal control of their property, equal control of their earnings, equal right to make contracts, equal citizenship rights, equal inheritance rights, equal control of national, state, and local government, 
equal opportunities in schools and universities, equal opportunities in government service, equal opportunities in professions and industries, equal pay for equal work. Arguments against the amendment in this brochure came from Benjamin Loring Young of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. He noted that there were states that did need work in the area of women's rights, but he objected to the Equal Rights Amendment becoming the supreme law of the land. Quote, Under the law in Massachusetts, women here have many rights not accorded to men. The amendment would destroy these rights. It would level down as well as level up. The legal obligation of the husband to support the wife would be nullified, and the criminal statutes and divorce laws based upon this right to support would no longer be enforced. Our law does not contain any reciprocal provision compelling the wife to support the husband. Such rights and obligations must be made identical under the theory of equal rights or they cease to exist. Young went on to detail many of the other protections that we have already mentioned before, continuing, quote, Each woman as a potential mother must be safeguarded against overstrain and not regarded merely as an economic unit. More generally, he argued that the amendment would raise, quote, thousands of difficult legal questions in every state, which would completely overwhelm the legal system. I like how his statement objects to the idea of regarding women merely as an economic unit, but really doesn't have a problem regarding women as potential mothers and having that be, like, the definition of a status. Well, that's because they, he was making the case that motherhood was more valuable. I know, but Which still. is a choice <laughs> that a dude is making. <laughs> um, there are problems. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> aside from this debate about whether the amendment would really make things better for women, there was also another thread to this discussion among people who opposed the amendment. And that was that the fight for women's suffrage was not really over yet. Although the 19th Amendment had not made any distinctions based on race, in practice, many states had implemented discriminatory voting laws that made it far more difficult for people of color to register to vote and to exercise their right to vote. Especially in the South, Black women were still largely disenfranchised, and the same was true of Hispanic women in the West and Southwest. Asian immigrants were not permitted to become citizens and consequently could not vote. The connections between indigenous citizenship and tribal sovereignty are complicated, but when the 19th Amendment was ratified, many indigenous women were not considered U.S. citizens and didn't have the right to vote either. So many women of color felt like it wasn't yet time for the women's movement to turn its attention to another issue, rather than making sure all women could access their right to vote. After that first introduction in 1923, the Mott Amendment was reintroduced at every legislative session. For the most part, it did not make it out of committee, and it was not actually voted on. For the next two decades, in general, trade unions, including the United Automobile Workers and the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, opposed or refused to endorse the bill. So did the National Consumers League, the National Council of Jewish Women, and the National Council of Negro Women, among others. Meanwhile, professional associations of women dentists, lawyers, business professionals, and others endorsed the amendment. Then, in 1938, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act into law. This legislation grew out of the Great Depression and the New Deal. It was much smaller in scope than it is today, but it established a minimum wage and overtime pay, as well as banning child labor, in industries that practiced interstate commerce. 
At this point, opposition to the Mott Amendment in organized labor started to wane as the types of workplace protections that had been applied only to women were now at least starting to be applied to everyone. Yeah, the first version of the Fair Labor Standards Act only applied to something like a fifth of all workers, but it was still like a starting point. In 1940, the Republican Party's platform included this, quote, We favor submission by Congress to the states of an amendment to the Constitution providing for equal rights for men and women. The Democratic Party followed suit in 1944 with the addition of, quote, We recommend to Congress the submission of a constitutional amendment on equal rights for women. Both parties had some kind of statement supporting an amendment for equal rights regardless of sex or specifically equal rights for women in their platforms for the next few decades. Also in the 40s, President Harry Truman became the first of seven consecutive presidents to endorse the idea of an equal rights amendment. In 1943, the Mott Amendment was revised to reflect language of other existing constitutional amendments. Now known as the Alice Paul Amendment, it read, quote, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. For the first time, the Alice Paul Amendment came to a vote, but failed in 1946. There was another attempt to pass it in 1950, with various riders being added on that were supposed to exempt the protective laws that we talked about uh, that protected women in the workplace and were still on the books, but that effort also failed But the amendment kept being introduced year after year. Things shifted once again in the 1960s, and we are going to get into that after we pause for a sponsor break. Between the first introduction of the Mott Amendment and the 1960s, the United States had been through two world wars and the Great Depression— Throughout that, there had been ongoing shifts in what was considered acceptable for women. Then in 1963, President John F. Kennedy signed the Equal Pay Act of 1963. That was an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it made it illegal to pay men and women different wages if their jobs had, quote, equal skill, effort, and responsibility, and which are performed under similar working conditions. In 1964, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law. It outlawed racial segregation in businesses like restaurants and movie theaters, and it also outlawed employment discrimination due to race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Ironically, opponents to the act had added sex to that list with the hopes that it would cause it to fail. Combined with the Fair Labor Standards Act, these two pieces of legislation largely removed labor organizers' objections to the Equal Rights Amendment. It either gave everybody the same protections or it already made the protections they were trying to keep illegal. Like, that was done now. At about the same time, the women's liberation movement was growing in the United States. In 1963, Betty Friedan published her best-selling book, The Feminine Mystique, and in 1966, she became one of the co-founders of the National Organization for Women, or NOW. NOW and others in the women's liberation movement started advocating for the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was still being introduced in Congress every session. Then, Representative Martha Griffiths, a Democrat from Michigan, finally broke the ongoing cycle of the Equal Rights Amendment's introduction and getting stuck in committee. She filed a discharge petition, which is a way of forcing a stalled bill out of committee and onto the House floor for debate and voting. 
It's not used very often because it requires someone to gather signatures from 218 of the 435 members of the House of Representatives. Griffiths did this in 1970. The House debated and passed the Equal Rights Amendment on August 10, 1970, but this time the amendment did not make it out of the Senate. Senators wanted to add some kind of a clause that would exempt women from the military draft, and this got bogged down in committee again. So Griffiths reintroduced the amendment again in the next session. It passed the House on October 12, 1971, with a vote of 354 to 23, and the Senate on March 22, 1972, with a vote of 84 to 8. It read, Section 1, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. And Section 3, this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Congress gave the states seven years to ratify the bill. Hawaii was the first to do it on March 22nd of 1972. Within nine months, 22 of the required 38 states had ratified the amendment. In 1973, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, or AFL-CIO, endorsed it. By the end of 1974, 33 states had ratified the amendment with only five left to go. According to Gallup polls, about three-quarters of Americans supported the amendment, so with just five states and five years left, it seemed like a sure thing. However, a vocal backlash against the amendment had been developing, which was tied in to an overall conservative movement in the United States. Some of the opposition to the amendment was connected to abortion rights. In 1973, the Supreme Court had issued its decision in Roe v. Wade, saying that the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause included a fundamental right to privacy, and that the right to privacy extended to the decision to terminate a pregnancy. Opponents worried that the Equal Rights Amendment could expand access to abortion and make it impossible for the court to overturn Roe v. Wade in the future. Opponents to the ERA also worried that it would force women to register for the draft and serve in combat, something that was very high on people's minds given the United States' involvement in the war in Vietnam. Much but not all of the opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment came from religious groups. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were incredibly active in campaigning against the amendment. At the time, roughly half of church members lived in just three states. Those were Utah, Nevada, and Idaho. Idaho had already ratified the amendment by the time the church took a public stance on the amendment, but voted to repeal its ratification afterward. Utah and Nevada did not ratify the amendment. There were also about 26,000 church members living in Virginia, mostly in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and they heavily lobbied their legislators. Virginia also did not ratify the amendment before the deadline. As had been the case in the earlier life of the Equal Rights Amendment, the most visible faces on both sides were relatively affluent white women. In terms of the opposition, that face was Phyllis Schlafly, a conservative Roman Catholic from Illinois who started a campaign called Stop ERA in 1972. That stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges, Equal Rights Amendment, She later founded the conservative interest group Eagle Forum. 
Schlafly described the ERA as anti-family and as something that would force women into co-ed situations when they didn't want to be. She described it this way, quote, What I am defending is the real rights of women. A woman should have the right to be in the home as a wife and mother. The Stop ERA campaign was incredibly strategic. Schlafly understood that she didn't really need to sway the entirety of public opinion against the ERA, and she didn't. Gallup polls showed that more than half of respondents were in favor of the ERA throughout the ratification period. In the mid to late 70s, this included people who described themselves as housewives and conservatives. Instead, Schlafly focused on getting just enough legislators to either vote against ratification or to stall the vote until after the deadline in states that had not yet ratified. To do this, she and other activists lobbied legislators directly. They went to state capitals wearing dresses and aprons and giving legislators homemade bread with slogans like, preserve us from a congressional jam, vote against the ERA sham, or from the bread maker to the breadwinner. They also stoked fears of what could happen if the ERA was passed. In addition to the idea of unrestricted abortions and women being drafted, there was same-sex marriage and the idea that the government would force the Catholic Church to allow women to be priests. And there was a lot of talk about how the ERA was going to lead to unisex bathrooms, which was summed up as the potty problem. In 1976, realizing that Schlafly's campaign was very effective, Republican Ella McMillan and Democrat Liz Carpenter formed ERA America, that's ERA, and then America minus the initial A, to try to counteract it. Now was still fighting for ratification as well, including organizing a boycott of the non-ratifying states. In 1977, the National Women's Conference was held in Houston, Texas. This was a congressionally funded conference that was attended by more than 130,000 people, including 2,000 state delegates, with a goal of formulating a plan to move the nation toward gender equality. That plan would then be presented to Congress and the president. Delegates created a plan of action that had 26 planks. Some of them were child abuse prevention, low-cost child care, enforcement of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, support for Roe versus Wade, legislation to end discrimination based on sexual preference, to use the language of the plank at the time, and ratification of the ERA. Schlafly held a counter-rally in Houston that she described as pro-family at the same time, That rally issued its own resolution against lesbian rights, abortion rights, and the ERA. At this point, the ratification process had completely stalled. On March 9, 1978, Congress passed a three-year extension of the deadline for ratification. On March 22, 1979, Phyllis Schlafly threw a gala to celebrate the expiration of the original deadline. In 1980, the Republican Party dropped support for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment from its party platform. Ronald Reagan included his opposition to the ERA as part of his presidential campaign and became the first president since Truman to oppose it. Support for the ERA among the general public reached its lowest point during that election year, dropping down to 52% in favor, 28% opposed, and almost 20% I don't know. Support among conservatives, religious fundamentalists, and housewives dropped below 50% for the first time during that 1980 presidential campaign as well. Among states that had not ratified the amendment, support dropped down to 48.1% in favor, 
39.5% opposed, with the rest I don't know. When the second deadline approached, the Equal Rights Amendment was three states short of ratification. In addition, Nebraska, Tennessee, Idaho, Kentucky, and South Dakota had all voted to rescind or otherwise canceled their ratifications in response to the Stop ERA campaign. The second deadline to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment passed on June 30th of 1982. Phyllis Schlafly threw another celebratory gala with the band playing Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, among other selections. Republican Senator Jeremiah Denton of Alabama, who was in attendance, said, quote, We have overcome one of the most powerful propaganda campaigns in the history of politics. Legislators started, once again, reintroducing the Equal Rights Amendment at every congressional session. As all this was going on, the Supreme Court had continued to issue rulings that interpreted the equal protection and due process clauses that are in the Constitution and its amendments as relevant. One was Frontiero versus Richardson in 1973. Sharon Frontiero was a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force. Wives of military members were automatically granted a housing allowance and medical care, but husbands were not unless they were dependent on their wives. Frontiero challenged this, and the Supreme Court found that the policy was unconstitutional. Three years later, the court issued a decision in Craig versus Boren. Oklahoma law at the time prohibited the sale of non-intoxicating beer, that is under 3.2% alcohol, to males under 21 and females under 18. Curtis Craig, who was male and between the ages of 18 and 21, challenged this law as unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court agreed. The court issued a ruling that also called for intermediate scrutiny in questions of whether sex-based discrimination was unconstitutional. This meant that laws that treated the sexes differently had to be substantially related to an important government interest, and that's been the standard since they made that ruling back in the 70s. This is a lower standard of scrutiny than is required for race-based discrimination, but a higher standard than is required for some other things, including discrimination based on age. Some of these court cases had the exact same outcomes that the opponents of the ERA said the amendment would bring about. For example, in 1979, the court heard the case of Orr versus Orr, in which Lillian Orr had sued her ex-husband William for non-payment of alimony. William Orr had challenged this as unconstitutional because Alabama, where they lived, required husbands to pay alimony but not wives. The court agreed, ruling that, quote, classifications by gender must serve important governmental objectives. In 1996, the court found Virginia Military Institute's male-only admissions policy unconstitutional in United States versus Virginia. And, of course, in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, the Supreme Court decided that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause requires states to license marriages between people of the same sex. The federal government was also continuing to pass laws that were related to equality regardless of sex during the ratification period for the ERA. This included Title IX, which is one of the educational amendments of 1972, which reads, quote, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, 
be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. In the 1990s, NOW and other organizations formulated the three-state strategy, which combined an effort to get three more states to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment with proposed legislation to remove the earlier deadline. Since then, Nevada ratified the ERA on March 22, 2017, and Illinois ratified it on May 30, 2018. And as we said at the top of the show, Virginia did so earlier this year. So that leaves some not entirely answered questions as of when we are recording this, although a number of people will stridently insist that the questions are actually answered. There's nothing in the Constitution about whether a state can rescind its ratification of a constitutional amendment, as five states voted to do with the ERA, and it's not really totally clear whether it works if they vote to do that. Ohio and New Jersey tried to rescind their ratification of the 14th Amendment, but they are still listed as ratifiers in the amendment's official documentation. The Supreme Court decided that this was a political question for Congress and not a matter for the courts back in 1939. There are also arguments about whether the deadline is really relevant. The Supreme Court has previously ruled that it's not unconstitutional for Congress to set such a deadline. But it's also been noted that this deadline wasn't part of the amendment itself. And it wouldn't be the first time that an old constitutional amendment has been ratified and added to the Constitution. The 27th Amendment, adopted in 1992, reads, quote, No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. It was part of the original Bill of Rights, approved by Congress in 1789, but it was not ratified until 1992. Like the Equal Rights Amendment, it didn't have a deadline as part of the text itself. Yeah, uh Congress has tried to avoid this problem with some other amendments by, like, having actually in there in the text that there are seven years or however many years to ratify the thing. So, as of this moment, we are kind of in limbo, with one side considering the matter closed because the deadline passed, and the other side arguing that the deadline does not matter or proposing various legislation to change the deadline. The Department of Justice issued a memo on this matter on January 6, 2020, which began, quote, Congress has constitutional authority to impose a deadline for ratifying a proposed constitutional amendment. It exercised this authority when proposing the Equal Rights Amendment, and because three-fourths of the state legislatures did not ratify before the deadline that Congress imposed, the Equal Rights Amendment has failed of adoption and is no longer pending before the states. Accordingly, if one or more state legislatures were to ratify the proposed amendment, it would not become part of the Constitution, and the archivist could not certify its adoption. But on the other hand, the attorneys general of Virginia, Illinois, and Nevada, the last three states to ratify the amendment, also filed suit to have it added to the Constitution on January 30th. Yeah, we're recording this on February 4th, so... It's all very fresh. (laughs) It's all very new. There are also still a lot of unanswered questions about what the ERA would mean in practice if it were to become the next constitutional amendment, including things like whether it would apply to laws around things like physiology, like breastfeeding or menstruation, 
whether it would make government programs like Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, which is WIC, whether it would make those kinds of programs unconstitutional, or whether the language on account of sex would mean that the amendment applies to intersex, non-binary, and transgender people. That's where we are on the on the Equal Rights Amendment. It's one of those things that really fascinates me because as this has dragged out for 100 years, the world has changed so much. And it has changed some to reflect that. But as you said right there at the conclusion, there's a whole other raft of elements that need to be uh, addressed and considered. And it's it's tr- like the slowness has made this trickier than it would have been, say, 50 years ago. Right. I, th- I think um, if... It had been ratified back in the 70s. It would have gone through a similar trajectory to the 14th Amendment, where probably the Supreme Court back in the 70s would have heard cases that were about uh, discrimination that was not specifically against women or men, but was against uh, like a, an intersex person or a right. trans person. I'm not saying that trans person are neither men nor women, but like the, the courts I think would have moved from like a binary, this is about men and women reading of the law uh, or reading of the amendment, like into a more broad reading of amendment, the amendment, similarly to how the 14th Amendment went from being two classes black and white to applying to all this other stuff. Yeah. But like now that it has been, 50-something years almost since it was sent to the states for ratification and it was not ratified during that time. Like, now those questions are surrounding it even though, like, it hasn't actually been added to the Constitution at this point. Yeah. <laughs> also, it uh, it's a story uh, that frustrates me a bit because, like, the uh, a, a bit is an understatement because... It passed Congress with overwhelming majorities, and then it was clearly on track to pass among the states and had among the general population the majority uh, or at least a plurality in favor of it through all that time um, and then got derailed by what was clearly like a very vocal minority opposition to it. Anyway, we'll probably talk more about that behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you have listener mail for us in the meantime? I sure do. This is from Megan, and Megan wrote after our behind-the-scenes episode on Lord Elgin and the Parthenon marbles, in which I expressed a number of opinions and was um, just a little worried about whether those opinions were going to garner me a lot of angry email. Uh, And... (laughs) Megan did not send angry email, just to be totally upfront about that. Uh, Megan says, I do have a lot of opinions and certainly share yours, but the thing that struck me was the comment about museums not taking into consideration the cultures whose items are being displayed. I work in the arts for an orchestra, and we've started learning and adopting the practices of of, by, for, all. To boil it down very simply, it's a movement whose focus is to help organizations work within the communities they are trying to attract. The founder worked in a museum that had for years held a Day of the Dead event in a community with a strong Latino presence, but only white people attended the event in question. Now it is something driven and involving the Latino community because the museum started talking to people instead of throwing the event for them and expecting them to show up. If you have a chance, watch one founder Nina Simons talks. Uh, Megan then sent a link to a video. I have a feeling you will agree with her point of view. We have a lot of discussions in the orchestral world about appropriation and how whitewashed classical music history is. 
The orchestra I work with is focusing on working with different communities to find out how we can best collaborate and feel ownership in their local orchestra. Music is for everyone, not just old white people. Uh, I could go on forever, but I will stop myself now. I very much enjoy your podcast. Thank you for all your hard work putting these excellent episodes together. I didn't realize how much I enjoyed learning about history until I started listening to you. All the best, Megan. Um, I've said Megan this whole time. Megan may say it, Megan. I apologize if I got it wrong. Um, (laughs) Megan also let us know that our Facebook page had our old email address on it, so I went and fixed that. Uh, so thank you so much, Megan, for this email. The video that uh, this email included the link to, I only have had the chance to watch about the first 20 minutes of. Um, we don't have a great way on our website right now to share links for things, but if you Google Nina Simon of Buy For All, uh, it will take you to it really quickly. And it is very interesting because she, she starts off talking about coming into a museum that was really, really struggling um, and having to turn that around and having to figure out how to actually connect with the community that they were located in, which is really super interesting. So thank you uh, so much for this email. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. And then we're all over social media as Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, anywhere else you want to get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.